when you have to take notes about medication management and you have to note every detail of every you know thing that happens in um, eight hours of sharing time with somebody with an intellectual disability, um, that feels mundane sometimes. But there is such beauty in the mundane of attending to the sacredness of a human body and a human life. Um, and there's something so powerful about friendship that can be built across um, you know, people with intellectual disabilities. You don't, you don't help. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Welcome to Hospice Chaplaincy Podcast. Today, we have the distinct honor of having Laura Goble in our studio. Laura Goble is the Vice National Leader Director of Community Support at L'Arche USA. Good morning, Laura. Good morning. Would you mind helping us out here this morning and give us an idea? What is L'Arche USA? Sure. L'Arche is a movement. It's a movement of communities. Um, It's a global movement of communities. And what's special about these communities is that they're intentional about a couple things. One is spirituality and the other is difference. Um, So these communities exist uh, in different ways, in different places, with different people, but at its heart is that intentionality around spirituality and friendship across difference. So we have uh, 17 communities in the United States and five projects, which are like young communities uh, working towards becoming in a community. Um, And then we have um, almost 150 communities all over the world. So what is the movement? Yeah, the movement at its heart is about bringing people together into a place of belonging. Uh, It's about spirituality. It's about community. It's about um, supporting people with intellectual disabilities for full inclusion. Um, And it's about uh, something that happens really sacredly between and among people when they build friendship across difference, about announcing that, about uh, being a sign of hope in a really divided world, in a world that um, people are struggling uh, to make connections across difference in ways that are transformative and creative and constructive. Um, L'Arche is a sign and a symbol and um, something that points to a larger truth. Mm. And that's uh, that's powerful. Um, Before we go into your role within uh, the organization, could you give our listeners a little background of where you grew up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, actually in a little suburb south of Buffalo called Hamburg, New York. Um, I grew up in a pretty blue-collar community, a a community of uh, people that worked hard, and Buffalo is known as the city of good neighbors. Uh, So I grew up in a culture of people who uh, just would shovel each other's driveways and make sure we get a lot of snow in Buffalo uh, and make sure that their their neighbors were well. I'd say one thing that's uh, connected to L'Arche for me uh, that is a part of my history is I I grew up 
um, with an uncle with profound intellectual disability. He was institutionalized. Um, I've only met him a couple of times. Um, and then I also had um, a family friend uh, that I grew up knowing as my cousin. Um, and she was always a part of our family gatherings. Um, and my, my grandmother would spend a lot of time uh, with this woman, Marilyn, who was, um, uh, had significant intellectual disabilities. And I just grew up knowing Marilyn and being connected to her and then having this knowledge of this uncle that I had um, who was institutionalized. And I had a lot of questions about why was Marilyn a part of our family and our family life um, and uh, accompanied uh, through life the way that she was and why was my uncle institutionalized? And I carried a lot of those questions um, that were broke open when I came to know Larsh and came to know um, uh, the history of institutionalization of people with disabilities in the United States and around the world. Um, and the Larsh movement is about uh, bringing people from isolation to belonging. I'm sensing such a strong, strong passion. And uh, it's must come from some sort of faith background. Since we're here with, you know, talking about hospice chaplaincy, why don't we, uh, can I delve into that just a little bit, just to see where, where you come from? You know, one of my favorite things about Larsh is that it's um, it's a at its heart a place of being able to hold tensions. Um, so it it was a movement that was born um, primarily of people of Catholic and Christian faith tradition, um, people who were inspired by justice, um, were inspired um, by Catholic social teaching in a lot of ways around the dignity um, of each human life, um, the dignity of every person. Um, and I, I've always, that really resonates with me. I don't come from that background, but I really love, um, I've, I came from a really multi-layered religious background. <laughs> um, but my spirituality really resonated, uh, with Larsh. Um, I'm, I'm a person who loves culture, who loves difference, um, who loves learning about places around the world and people around the world, different worldviews, different experiences, different economic levels. Um, I'm somebody who, um, grew up as the only girl in a family full of boys. Um, so <laughs> I'm really in tune with gender differences. Um, I'm somebody who's really in tune um, around all kinds of differences. And Larsh is a place that can hold tension of differences, but at its heart, it invites people to deepen their own personal spirituality mm -hmm. and also to have a shared spirituality and community. At what age in your life did you feel a passion for this kind of working in a diverse setting? You know, I think the first time I'm consciously aware of that is when I went to college. Um, I, uh, I grew up in a place where my family was economically poor um, and struggled um, to make it okay and be okay. Um, and then I went, um, I was a first generation college student uh, and I went to a university setting where I was exposed to a lot of difference um, of, of different spiritual backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, um, different life experiences. And um, I started, I also went to a, a school that was primarily um, uh, people who were white and people who were Christian. Um, and so I noticed, I started paying attention to my own experience of marginalization or my own experience of being a minority 
Um, and then I started paying attention to who else has that experience here. Um, you know, people who, who in a Christian setting might come from um, a, a different um, faith background, people who had a different racial background, people who had a sexual orientation that was treated differently um, in the Christian context. And so I started paying attention to that. Um, and then I started traveling. Um, I had opportunities to, to travel through my university uh, to, to different countries and started paying attention to, well, what happens here around spirituality? What happens here around economic um, differences? What happens here around uh, relationships and community? So I think college is really where it broke open for me. I think every community or culture that I've visited um, has, has offered a gift um, and so I, I think about, um, you know, the first time I traveled outside of the country, um, I, I lived right on, in Buffalo is right on the border between the United States and Canada. And although we are alike in many ways, Canadian culture is very different than U.S. American culture. Um, and there's, there's gifts in those differences. Um, this, in college, uh, I traveled to Mexico um, and being in, in Mexico, um, I, I saw a huge wealth gap. Um, and I was really startled by, you know, the, the lushness of certain neighborhoods um, just across the border in Tijuana and then the poverty. Um, and I, I was also really struck about um, the place of family and community in, in the community that I visited. Um, I also had lots of questions. The first time I traveled to Mexico was um, for a short-term mission experience. And I had all kinds of questions around why am I going across the border and building a wall at this church when there's people who need jobs in this community and what's this about? And so I started asking questions around the role of economically wealthy countries and communities um, in uh, less developed or developing uh, communities. Um, I, I really, um, I, I moved to Burundi, East Africa for six months um, and started asking some of those questions even more. Burundi is this country that um, has a, a really painful history of, of genocide and civil unrest. Um, and I worked with children who um, experienced intense trauma in war, um, intense trauma in uh, the midst of the AIDS pandemic. Um, and I, I remember being in Burundi um, and just being so astonished by the resiliency of children um, and who had faced uh, who had faced death at such young ages, who had faced trauma at such young ages, and were singing joyfully at school, you know, or that were playing um, and finding light and offering light. Um, and I was really intrigued by that. Um, I also remember in Burundi, um, there was a girl who was a part of the school community who um, had significant physical and intellectual differences and disabilities. Um, and she was included. She was included on the playground. Um, she could not communicate. She was, she had mobile um, challenges and children would touch her and talk to her and laugh with her. Um, and she, you could, she communicated and expressed in different ways. And I was really intrigued by that. Um, I've traveled uh, to many other countries, to Thailand, to Nicaragua, um, to Tanzania, um, to Kenya, um, to India. And in each of those places, um, the role of, um, of uh, 
the differences that I saw of who belongs or is excluded um, was something I paid a lot of attention to. And that really um, sat with me in my spirit. And that's a lot of what L'Arche is about, of bringing people to that place of exclusion to belonging. I'm intrigued, of course. Uh, sometimes it takes people a lifetime to have their eyes open like you've had. And sometimes they never are. Is there any one experience that you could say that really opened your eyes to what it is that you are supposed to be doing? Some people call it a calling. You know, Parker Palmer has this book called Let Your Life Speak. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, book really points to attuning to um, where, your, where your heart comes alive. Um, to, to read your history and your story. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, at, at my heart, in my experience, I've, I've had a lot of challenges. I've had some trauma. I've had some um, things that I had to overcome. And um, I remember being in college and listening to somebody speak um, in, in this huge chapel, this huge university chapel, and there's, you know, hundreds of people there. Um, and this man who was the president of an organization called World Relief spoke, um, and he was talking about darkness and light. Um, and he said, he was um, talking about if you want to see light, you go to the darkest places in the world. Mm. And um, something in me knew that my calling and my vocation was connected to darkness and light mm. and to going into dark places in the human heart and the human experience um, mm. and looking for light. Um um, bringing darkness into the light, honoring darkness and the gift and the um, the beauty and the learning that is in dark. Um, so something there, and that can apply. I've I worked in higher education for most of my career. I, for ten years, I worked in the university setting, um, but inviting students to encounter um, places of darkness um, and to learn who was bringing light there, who was transforming things there, who was transforming um, their own story into something that was bringing life and light into the world, um, and to learn from that um, through service learning, through immersion experiences. Um, and then I actually did an immersion experience with students um, in a L'Arche community, and I'd known L'Arche a long time. I I'd, I'd, uh, knew about L'Arche in Mexico and L'Arche in um, Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, in Tacoma, Washington, and in Portland, Oregon. I'd had these experiences of students um, that I worked with spending time in L'Arche, um, but I had never immersed myself in L'Arche uh -huh. except for a dinner. Um, and <laughs> coming to dinner is um, something that is talked about in L'Arche is come and see and come and come and experience a place of welcome and belonging like L'Arche. Um, but I spent a week in a L'Arche community in Hamilton, Ontario with students and I watched them transform in that week. I watched them go from a place of selfishness and privilege and arrogance to this place of really attuning um, with with um, their own um, their own posture of privilege and their own posture of selfishness and finding simplicity and joy um, and really listening and seeing and hearing and sensing themselves and others differently because um, of the gifts of people with intellectual disabilities to slow, um, to, or, uh, to overwhelm, or to challenge, or to um, 
live and be and exist in the world differently than uh, the the general experience mm-hmm. in a way that startles you and a way yeah. that awakens your soul that breaks something open. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, that's a part of the story. So Laura, um, I mean, what ad, what kind of adjustments have you had to make within you internally to be able to see the world differently like that? Because I'm I'm sure many people don't see either. They see it, but they are not willing to make the internal changes needed. Hmm. Perhaps you were just credit like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was. You know, I'm. I'm a. I have a friend. I, so I don't know if y'all know about the Enneagram. Um, the Enneagram is a personality typology, um, yeah. and I'm an Enneagram eight. And eights are known as uh, the the advocate or the fighter. Um, I'm, I, I have a friend who says, "What is this street fighter thing that comes up with you?" I have a really highly developed justice button. So when I see something that feels off or wrong, um, I can react really strongly. Um, and so I've had to, um, what I had to adjust in myself to allow, um, to allow the world in and to open myself, um, to darkness and light in new ways and to, um, um, be an agent of, of change and of care and of love in places of fear, um, was humility. Um, I had to notice and understand what was getting pushed on in me, um, pay attention to it and, um, begin to learn how to channel that in constructive ways and in creative ways rather than destructive ways. Um, and man, that gosh, everyone who knows me, Saul, my friend over here included, um, has experienced that, you know, a posture of humility of allowing yourself to be changed by relationships or allowing yourself to be changed by difference. Um, so an opening, an intentional opening, it's vulnerable. It's about vulnerability. We, um, we're, we're avoiders of awkwardness. Mm-hmm. We're avoiders of vulnerability, particularly for an Enneagram eight. That's like my worst fear is to be vulnerable or to be tra- mm-hmm. somebody trying to control me or change me. Um, and I've had to really intentionally understand the gift and beauty of vulnerability um, and of uh, showing up in spaces uh, with my softer side and with my, um, with my slowness. And I think, um, you know, just like other people, a posture of humility means showing up, taking a risk, mm-hmm. engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, mine is about showing up with my softer side. Uh, you speak highly, strongly of justice. Mm-hmm. How do you view the world now? I mean, it's just, it's chaos. And how is, how is it you can see? Uh, I would love to hear how you, how you're going to, how Larsh is going to, or doing what they're doing with, uh, with all that's going on. I know that there are you're, some of your communities, I'm sure, have people of color. And all of it. How is this all going to kind of melt together? And how you? How is it you? Are you going to try and keep everybody okay? At its heart, Larsh is a movement of unity and diversity. Um, and we've had to learn how to hold the tensions of difference, and that means sometimes holding intense emotion or experience of not shying away from pain or suffering 
um, and also inviting celebration and joy. Um, we believe in the gift of all people um, about making space for particularly voices that have been muted or silenced. Um, and we do that imperfectly. You know, some of our communities um, are really struggling. Um, some are primarily white and Catholic and Christian and have a deep heart to understand and to engage what's going on in society, but maybe have less opportunity or less understanding. And the call there is um, to invite relationship across difference, to look for um, a deepening of understanding um, and to show up um, when when the opportunity arises. And that could be showing up in learning more. It can be showing up in conversation. It can be showing up in voting. It can be showing up um, in lots of different ways. But if we believe in inclusion of people with intellectual disabilities, um, people with intellectual disabilities also, yeah, come, come in all kinds of um, experiences and backgrounds, including uh, racial differences. Um, many of our uh, folks who we call assistants, um, these are people that provide direct support care for people with intellectual disabilities. Many of them are people of color um, because um, that's part of the economic reality or that's part of the training or that's part of many different reasons why the workforce, um, folks that are interested um, or available or engaged um, as assistants or direct care support workers, um, that's their experience. And so, so we have all kinds of stories of, um, of uh, a core member um, who is a person with an intellectual disability in one of our communities, um, maybe had a, a racist uh, upbringing, you know, a, an upbringing that cultivated bias and prejudice in them. And then they've said something uh, derogatory or um, really hurtful or offensive to an assistant that is their friend or that is providing care and how, um, you know, in a group home or an institution, how they handle that um, oftentimes is to just, you know, ask the worker if they want to work somewhere else or not work with that person or, you know, to um, sometimes an organization might handle it, honestly, but in Larsh, it has been our value that the community debriefs that, the community processes that, mm. that the the person um, and the core member, sometimes it's diminished of, well, that person has an intellectual disability. They didn't know any better. And mm. the answer is, uh, is not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, person with an intellectual disability is really in tune um, with lots of different kinds of things in the world, maybe differently, um, but it is not okay to have violence and prejudice stand in a community um, and so how can we honestly address that and figure out ways to cultivate life and light in that place of, of violence or darkness um, and not tokenize uh, the person of color and, you know, ask them to speak on behalf of all people, but to speak from their own experience. Yeah. Of how do you know, how, how does that make you feel? Uh -huh. um, what, what can we do to create a safe place for all of our members um, and talking about that as a community, it's not just an issue between um, there's a there's a private element of an experience like that, um, and then there's a public element to an experience like that. And so the the private interpersonal thing needs to be addressed, but also there's this public experience of um, as a community, what is our responsibility um, mm -hmm. to ensure that all members are safe and can be safe and brave in our community. 
Awesome. It's, yeah, it's amazing to see how you, how your organization addresses the issues of of race, and um, it's powerful, you know, giving people an opportunity and it's a space to process. Um, I like the way you use the words light and dark. Yes, and uh, how you guys hold that tension together is really powerful. So, how do families um, uh, find large uh, uh, and and bring members? How do you guys work with families so that families know your existence so that they can bring members there? You know, the initial movement of L'Arche was largely uh, deinstitutionalization of people with intellectual disabilities, so bringing people out of big hospital settings into community life. Um, and over time, um, and some of those were pretty bleak experiences, um, really disempowering, really isolating, really painful and traumatizing. Um, and so coming into L'Arche was about coming into family life, uh, was coming into um, social connection and um, all of the beauty and all of the challenges that come along with family or community life. Um, over time, um, as L'Arche grew, the how people come to L'Arche, particularly in the United States, has certainly changed. Um, so our communities are small. We, we don't, uh, we've never meant to scale and be a solution for all people. Um, and so families, you know, oftentimes come to us, um, through, um, they're, they're thinking about life, uh, for their, their loved one, um, when they can no longer provide the supports that their loved one needs after they die or when they become fragile or, um, when they're the person uh, with an intellectual disability's care support needs um, surpass what the capacity of a caregiver might be. Um, so families um, are are looking for what next for this person. Um, and oftentimes they find L'Arche because the difference between L'Arche and many other contexts is about spirituality. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a place where the spirituality of their loved one will be tended to, um, will be valued, will be nurtured and cultivated, um, where the voice of their loved one um, will be um, elevated and uh, valued in their own decision-making for their own life. Um, and we do that imperfectly. So I don't want to uh, paint L'Arche as this perfect utopia community. It's not. We, I mean, everything that I'm talking about, there's a gap, of course, between our espoused values and our, and our lived experience. But we pay attention to that gap. Um, and we try to work on it. And we work on it in individual communities. And then we work on it nationally um, together. And then we work on it globally because we are this federation of communities and we learn from one another. Um, that that difference happens in this really micro level, this tiny level in you know what happens in the intimacy of a meal or in the intimacy of shared life in a home um, or shared life in a community center or in a project. Um, it also or in a boardroom or an office um, where Lars also exists. It also happens in these macro levels of this movement um, and learning around um, how we approach problems or how we approach life or community or spirituality is different in one place than another. And creating spaces to listen across that difference and and be changed by one another um, is is a big part of who we are, and we do it imperfectly. We'll take a short break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, 
Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. So I have a follow-up question. So what is the expectation of the family if they bring a member to LASH? And then um, how is spirituality practiced within those communities? I know you said each, each community is different in how they practice spirituality. But from the organizational level, is there? But let's start with the first. Uh, what is the expectation of family? You know, it's really different according to each community or each particular core member. If they they have a family, some t- some of our core members um, do not have a family, and they come to Larsh um, without. Um, you know, they might have a guardian, or they might have some connection, or um, or they might have a lot of connection. Um, so it really depends on the individual person and the community. Um, but we try to work really closely with families. And it's actually a really good example to talk about death and dying um, because, you know, if if there is um, a death either in the family or the core member is moving towards death or there is a death in the community and the core member is close to it, um, we, we work really closely to that whole web of people um, to design um, an experience um, of of really welcoming death and dying. Um, it's a big part of actually the Larsh culture. Um, we have some rituals that are pretty pretty consistent across um, Larsh communities all over the world. There are some things that unite us, and one of them is this um, is um, a tradition of passing the candle. So when a loved one dies, um, oftentimes, or a core member, or an assistant, or a family member, we have this ritual. <clears throat> <clears throat> we have this ritual of passing the candle around a circle mm. and naming the gifts of the person that has died mm. and invoking the gifts of that person of that life um, is something really powerful and something that is really amazing that people all over the world practice this mm. ritual and it's what unites us in Larsh. Um, so we coordinate, you know, what the family might, how close or not close or how, um, what they know um, needs to happen when a person comes into Larsh, um, they they work out those those agreements um, or those understandings together with a family or guardian. Where do you see what do you see of the future of Larsh? Where is it going? Uh, and your role? Part of my role in Larsh is actually about growth. Um, Larsh has not grown in number of communities for many years. Um, we had an explosion of communities uh, growing and developing um, in the 60s and 70s, and then a few um, in the in the decades since. And right now, we're actually um, really facing another season of growth. People are seeking Larsh. Um, many times, it's folks that have um, read books that talk about Larsh or are asking that question around how can I ensure my loved one is cared for and in a place of belonging after I can't care for them any longer? Um, sometimes it's a, a former assistance, so people that lived intentionally in large community, many times right out of college or you know in in their twenties, and then left large, um, started a career, um, started a family, and then are are hungering for large in their place where they live now and are interested to start large. So. 
Um, I, I see growth ahead, um, new communities and new models that, you know, the model uh, initially, um, the model is L'Arche and, and L'Arche is about community. It's about um, supporting with excellence people with intellectual disabilities to be fully included. It's about spirituality and it's about this broader sign to the world, a, um, a sign of hope in the world. Um, that's the model. And that can be expressed. Typically, people think about it as a group home model. Um, and now we're seeing new ways of the model of L'Arche being lived um, in shared living networks of uh, folks and shared living as maybe a person with an intellectual disability shares life with a family um, and maybe has some supports that need to be provided either by that family um, or a direct support care worker comes into the home. Um, and then there's a network of those families that have invited somebody with an intellectual disability into their home. Um, there's mixed housing um, where a, there's a mix of um, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities living in an apartment complex together. Um, there is a community center model where it's, people are brought together around shared experiences or shared practices. There's, um, you know, maybe a model of developing a business together. Um, and it's really about what happens between and among that spaces between people, those differences, that is what L'Arche is about. So I see us opening up our understanding of what L'Arche is in new ways. Um, and also I see us, us growing and multiplying. Um, we're reimagining uh, what, what is the heart of L'Arche um, and what's essential, uh, who we are, what unites us in this federation all over the world and how do we express that in our local context. Do you think it's been lost, that, that concept? And because it sounds like whenever you start thinking of something changing, something new, you think you, the, my fear is that you're going to lose what it is that brought it all together. I'm sure that fear exists in a lot of people. Um, my sense is no. My sense okay. is that the essence and heart of L'Arche, this essence of uh, spirituality, of difference, is really anchored um, and really needed and so maybe even more deeply rooted right now, um, how it's expressed, um, how we um, how we reread our history, how we reread what our practices have been, our traditions, um, in order to uh, make it relevant for what's happening right now. Um, that's actually really exciting. Um, I, I don't think that we're losing. Um, I think some people will lose. There's there's a loss. Um, when things change for everybody. And, and that comes back to, you know, what the show is all about in a lot of ways around, um, you know, encountering loss, encountering grief, um, and also embracing and celebrating um, gifts and opportunities, um, being allowing yourself to be changed um, as things change um, and not sugarcoating that there's loss because mm -hmm. there, there is. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, for sure. And also um, there's new life. I've always uh -huh. been really moved by this concept of a nurse log. Um, when a tree fells in, in a forest and it starts to decompose and it dies and it becomes new life comes forth. It uh -huh. becomes soil and new life grows out of it. Um, and I think that is uh, what happens a lot in change of um, some things are dying and there will be loss um, and also new life comes and grows out of it. And uh, can we not get um, bogged down in um, the loss and be be stuck there 
And also, can can we really um, allow ourselves to feel the loss, allow ourselves to be honest about the loss, uh, while also celebrating the new life and seeing it and hearing it and sensing it and nourishing and, and nurturing it? You spoke uh, briefly about the ritual of, of death. How do you guys help uh, the members who are mourning the death of a loved one in the community? Um, there are as many ways um, as there are people. Um, every person with an intellectual disability has a unique way of experiencing the world and expressing themselves and bringing themselves into the world. Um, so there's some, as I said earlier, there's something that's um, private, that's, that's personal, and there's something that's collective, that's public. Um, and so we ask those questions of what, what is, um, what might an individual person might need and then what needs to be shared among us as a community. Um, we talk about the, the uniqueness of the person that has died and, or is dying and what they might need. Um, I've seen, for instance, um, a community who's grieving the loss of a core member, um, have, a. uh, a place where they place favorite things of the person that is dying or has, has died. Um, and they, you know, might light a candle, um, and have this, this place for a certain period of time, um, that can really invoke the spirit and essence of that person. Um, I've seen, um, you know, folks, um, do all kinds of, uh, maybe make a group collage that celebrates the life of, uh, the person that has died. Um, I've seen um, all kinds of just playing the favorite game or singing the favorite song mm. um, or practicing something that was um, that embodies what that person's life and light was like mm. um, to really invoke that person's spirit. So do you have chaplains within the communities? Some of our communities have um, a role that is pastoral, um, that is specific to the spirituality or the spiritual life. Um, not all of our communities do. Um, again, uh, diversity and difference is one of our beauties <laughs> of and one of our challenges, right? Um, so, yes, um, I think maybe five or six of our communities have a role like that. And those people have found it increasingly challenging to meet the diverse needs of um, of members. And, and some have had really incredibly beautiful um, experiences of shifting from a, a traditional model of what a, a, a pastoral role might look like in a Christian or Catholic context um, to um, somebody who is grounded in in the understanding of uh, how a community uh, is or has been and also knows how to open space for difference or hold the tensions of difference. And you mentioned earlier this concept of watering down um, and really my... Uh, um, Whenever you're in an interfaith context or a diverse context, a context where people who are of faith um, or don't align or connect with faith, um, we we talk about, um, I am enriched by your experience. So we don't have to make everything work for everybody all the time. That actually is is not um, something that really nurtures and nourishes um, individuals or the community. But back to this, how can we help people deepen their own journey go deep into their own experience and also have a shared practice that's meaningful together. And those might be different. Um, 
And so a lot of the, the pastoral folks, whether they come from that Catholic or Christian background where they're, they're, they're really leading prayer or they're leading um, worship um, and some who are, are really facilitating spiritual experience, both of those are meaningful depending on the community. Um, so they have to learn um, who their people are and what the needs are of the community and then how um, they can both nurture that personal experience and that shared experience. I've been to a large community once and um, seeing the transformative nature of that community and what you're doing uh, with people with disabilities is um, it's amazing just affirming their humanity and being them, being there for them. If somebody wants, if somebody's listening and they're like, uh, we want to start a community in Joliet, Illinois, how does that even happen? Or is it even possible? Sure. Um, Oh, it's that easy. (laughs) Just say yes. (laughs) You know, um, we have this kind of uh, learning model that we talk about in L'Arche USA, um, where it's about encounter, Mm. engage, and then commit. And so I'd say, how can you encounter L'Arche? Um, you can encounter Larsh through somebody who has lived in Larsh and talking with them. You can encounter Larsh through, we have lots of videos, um, glimpses into Larsh experience. Um, you can encounter Larsh through books. You can encounter Larsh through um, choosing to be an assistant and, and share time in Larsh or choosing or seeking Larsh as a, as a core member or being a part of community life. Um, most of our communities have some sort of open element to how they live life together, a prayer night, um, a shared meal, um, fundraisers, um, friend raisers. So there's lots of ways that you can experience and encounter L'Arche. Mm. Um, and so I'd say find a, find a way to encounter, mm. um, and then process that. What does that bring up in you? Ask, get curious, um, about what you've experienced, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you sense, um, both outside of yourself and also inside of yourself. Um, and I think if you can process that and engage with what comes up in you, um, and then how the commit part is, what can you do new? What mm. can you do different? How are you changed? And how might that change? Mm. You, what might you be inspired to do now or do differently or think differently? Um, and so that, that would be my invitation. That's awesome. You know, um, I want people to be involved. So how can people get involved in this amazing work? (laughs) Um, You know, I'd say the first step to getting involved with L'Arche is to seeking an encounter to learning. Uh, We have a website um, and there's a how to, you know, how to get involved on the website. So LarcheUSA.org. You can get involved um, by... Uh, becoming an assistant. You can get involved by becoming a partner and that can be in volunteer time or that can be in um, offering your your money uh, to support the mission. Um, so there's lots of ways that you can get involved. Um, if you live near a large community, um, I'd, I'd certainly inquire, is there a way that you can connect or support? Um, so right now in the reality of... Um, uh, economic challenges and COVID-19, many of our communities are really struggling um, to welcome direct support 
mm-hmm. assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say if you, um, you know, it's, it's a vulnerable time for all of us. And so people need to make choices. Um, our communities um, uh, are, are working really hard to keep people safe in the context of the pandemic, but they need assistance. They need people who are willing to say yes to this transformative relationship community um, and for some people, they come to L'Arche because it's a job. Mm. Um, and for others, they come because they're inspired. Um, but there is a there is a job element um, to L'Arche. And so if you're looking for work and you're looking for work that means something, mm. um, that you are open to being changed in the way that we were talking about earlier to encountering light and dark, when you have to take notes about medication management and you have to note every detail of every you know, thing that happens in um, eight hours of sharing time with somebody with an intellectual disability, um, that feels mundane sometimes. But there is such beauty in the mundane of attending to the sacredness of a human body and a human life. One of the core aspects of L'Arche life is this concept of mutuality, um, of people of difference meeting one another. And you asked how you can get involved in L'Arche. And I'd say if you're, you know, if you're interested in getting involved, we need assistance. We need people to come to L'Arche. Um, and that is work to provide support and care for people with many different kinds of needs. And also um, people with all those differences bring a friendship and a connection. Um, sometimes doesn't develop real quick. <laughs> Sometimes takes a real long time, uh, but there's something really powerful that happens. If, you, if you're if you interested in getting connected to L'Arche, um, I'd say consider spending time um, volunteering, working, um, being involved in the community life, uh, becoming a donor, a partner, a board member. Um, so somehow finding your way to, to a deeper encounter. So how has working at L'Arche changed you? You know, I'm a foster and adoptive parent, and I have said to many people that being a foster parent has helped me be better in L'Arche, and being in L'Arche has helped me be a better foster parent. And why that is, I've been changed because I have to stand in this gap, this gap between the way things should be and the way things are. And I used to throw temper tantrums in that gap where this isn't the way it should be. These beautiful children should not have experienced what they have experienced. Um, The system should be serving them better. Um, And the same in L'Arche of, you know, if, if we say that we're a place of safety and belonging and yet this happened, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I would throw a big temper tantrum about it. Um, I still do sometimes, honestly. Um, However, um, the temper tantrum hurts and harms. Um, So I've had to learn how to channel um, my passion, my anger, my hurt, my sadness into something constructive and creative, a creative force rather than a destructive force. Um, And so part of that is meeting and attuning to the human life that's in front of me and caring for them. Um, whether it's uh, somebody on my team or it's uh, my child. Um, If it's somebody in the community, whether it's a board member who's upset about something or frustrated um, or is wanting to work on something, is inspired, um, or a community leader who has a vision um, or a 
um, a core member who, a person with an intellectual disability who has an idea or a need, um, how can we attune to the, to the gifts and the beauty of the individual and collectively do something together um, to bring light or to address and acknowledge the darkness? Uh, so I've been changed in my ability to do that with a greater level of skill. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am honored to have you be with us, be our very first <laughs> in-studio participant. Thank Let's you mark it. so it's a much. celebration. That's right. <laughs> Saul's buying lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that was Laura Gobo, the Vice National Leader of the Lush Community USA. Thank you for listening.